Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Build for Tomorrow, a podcast about the things from our past that shaped us and what it takes for us to shape the future. I'm Jason Pfeiffer. It was the worst of times. It was the worst of times. So let me tell you about them both. The year was 2008, and our brains were becoming a fog. We could barely focus anymore, not like we did in the good old days anyway, but we pulled it together long enough to pick up a copy of The Atlantic magazine where our problems were finally diagnosed. Google is making us stupid. That's what the cover said. And inside, the writer tells us that, quote, what the net seems to be doing is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation, end quote. If only it seemed we could go back, back to another time, back before all this, back to... The year was 1923, and our brains were becoming a fog. We could barely focus anymore, not like we did in the good old days anyway, but we pulled it together long enough to pick up a copy of the New York Times, where our problems were finally diagnosed. American life is too fast. That's what the headline says. And it quotes from the Secretary of State, who explains, quote, it is the day of the fleeting vision. Concentration, thoroughness, the quiet reflection that ripens the judgment are more difficult than ever, end quote. If only it seemed we could go back, back to another time, back before all this, back to, well, back to when? This is the question I always want to know the answer to. Honestly, every time I read stories like that, and oh, there are so many of them written today, I always have the same little fantasy. I imagine sitting these writers down and saying, okay, you were telling me that life was better before, so when exactly are you talking about? I mean, you're contrasting today with yesterday? What What yesterday? A specific year? A decade? Era? When was the golden age? What are the good old days? Now, I understand the limitations of this question. I mean, if the internet is the thing that killed concentration and contemplation, then, I mean, I suppose we could go back to, what, dial-up modem days when... This sound was very good for concentration and contemplation. Maybe, except concentration and contemplation had already been declared dead in 1923, so how could it possibly have been lost and then found and then lost again? And that is why, uh, I know, asking this question just will not get me anywhere. And also, the question kind of dead ends pretty fast, because I suppose I could ask the 2008 writer when the good old days were, but, you know, I can't ask the 1922 writer or anyone before him. But then I got to thinking something else. I realized, you know, silly as that exercise may be, it is not just a silly thing. It's not a silly problem. Because while people can complain all day about their lost concentration and all it'll do is harm the concentration of anyone trying to concentrate on something other than this person complaining about their lost concentration, this kind of thought can have far larger consequences. What we are talking about is not just some cranky nostalgia. What we are talking about is a nostalgia narrative, a story we tell ourselves about how the times before ours were better. 
And this is a powerful, motivating story, an easily believable story. It's the stuff not just of cranky newspaper writing, but of political and social movements appealing to anyone who feels like a victim of change. Nostalgia narratives can shape our actual narrative in ways that get real, real fast. People want to believe, for example, that they are a part of the greatest nation that redemption is around the corner, that a perfect nation in which no suffering happens is possible. And they also really, really want to think that there is an easy solution, that there's someone to blame and so on and so forth. And nostalgia narratives offer all of that. That's Alan Levinovitz, an associate professor of religion at James Madison University, who you'll be hearing more from in this episode. And what he's saying there, that a nostalgia narrative is a simplified version of history with an easy solution and an identifiable enemy, well, that logic travels easily. It is how social ills can be blamed on social media, for example, or how a shifting economy can be blamed on immigrants. I mean, sure. Nostalgia itself can be fun, if for some reason what you really wanted in life was a Saved by the Bell reboot. But that's just plain old nostalgia. A nostalgia narrative, on the other hand, well, that has broader consequences. So I couldn't help but go back to my silly idea because I felt like there was just something powerful to be had in it. Could I find any time any time in history that everyone agreed that was the good old days. Well, that would be pretty amazing. And if I couldn't, well, would that be a powerful argument against the nostalgia narratives we carry today? And how would this even be possible, given that most of the people who were alive on Earth are now, you know, the subjects of nostalgia? Well, that is when I realized the world today is full of historians. Historians who know what people of a different time were thinking. Historians who I am sure have absolutely nothing better to do than get on the phone with me so that I can ask two ridiculous yet important questions. Number one, did the people of a particular time period think they were living in a golden age? And if the answer is no, then here's question number two. When did they think the good old days were? So I just figured I'd repeat that over and over, starting today and going backwards and backwards through time until we found some answers. And so that is exactly what we are going to do in this episode. Now, a quick note before we begin, I originally created this episode in 2016 when this podcast was called Pessimist's Archive. But five years later, in 2021, I changed the name to Build for Tomorrow to reflect that this podcast is really an optimist's view of how we could learn from the past and build a better future. And I'd always wanted to redo this episode, to update the script, to bring in more ideas. So that is what you're listening to now. And spoiler alert... This quest is going to take us back, back and back and back again until we reach people who talked like this. And then we will keep going and we will find out once and for all if there ever was a golden age and when it was and if it wasn't, whether it makes sense to look backwards at all and what we can learn about nostalgia and ultimately what will it take to get backwards looking people more excited about looking forward. It is all coming up after the break. All right, we're back. 
We are about to embark upon a historical quest to see if we can locate the exact timing of the good old days by following when people of different time periods believed the good old days to be. And we are going to start this quest in our own time with our own nostalgia narrative, which in America, at least, is most powerfully captured in these four words. We will make America great again. Make America great again. Four words with an internal logic. America was great, it is not great now, and it can only become great by recreating the past. So, okay, that is our starting point. When does the word again in Make America Great Again actually refer to? Well, back in 2016, before Donald Trump was elected, The Daily Show sent its correspondence to a Trump rally to ask this very question. What year was America great? When it was founded. Except for the slavery stuff. Except for the slavery stuff. The Trump supporters in that clip had no consensus. Someone said 1913, one guy said the 1980s. But the most common answer, and the one that is widely considered to be the reference point for Make America Great Again, is the post-war era of the 1940s and 50s. So let's go there. Let's rewind and ask, did the people of the 1940s and 50s think they were living in a golden age? Well, um, turns out it depends on who you ask, I suppose. This is Doug McAdam. I'm a professor of sociology and political science at Stanford University, author of a bunch of books, but most recently one called Deeply Divided Racial Politics and Social Movements in Post-War America. So let me set the scene as Doug tells it. America in the post-war era was rattled by, and stop me when this sounds familiar, politics and technology. Politically, America was terrified of the Soviet Union, and technologically, America was terrified of the Soviet Union and the threat of nuclear war, of course. But a lot of people were also fearful of domestic innovations, like television, which threatened to turn the American population into mindless zombies. People talked about how mindless the students on college campuses were, only kind of tracking towards a conformist consumer-oriented way of life without soul. So there was a lot of commentary about the deadening conformity of post-war America. Yes, despite this deafening conformity, some communities were prospering in ways they hadn't before. But that is not our question here. We are looking for a time when people felt like they were getting it right. And Doug said that that was not the prevailing feeling of the time at all. So I asked him, when did the people of the 1940s and 50s think the golden age was? And he said, there's no single answer. Some might have said the 30s, though obviously the 30s featured a few economic problems. So... Some people probably romanticize the Roaring Twenties as a lot of fun. And that sounds fun. We like fun. So picture it. It is 1923 and you're kicking back on the couch catching up on the periodicals. The cover of the latest edition of Science and Invention magazine features a futuristic flying helicopter car hybrid thing. So cool. But then you open up your copy of the New York Times and... Ruh-roh, look at this headline. American life is too fast. Speed called fatal to ideas and real progress. Here we are with that New York Times story from 1923 that I opened the episode with. You know, the day of the fleeting concentration, all that stuff. Let's just appreciate it a little bit longer, shall we? Are we moving too fast? Too fast for health and too fast for thought? Should we and how can we slow down? 
Can an age of hustle produce a civilization equal to that of an age of serenity? Can pep produce world ideas? The answer, it seems to be, was no. And to be clear, that was not the only concern about modern life being splashed onto newsprint at the time. So what were we worried about in the 1920s? Oh boy, were we worried. In 1921 in the Montreal Gazette, we were worried about a little of everything. The movies, jazz dancing, and the cigarette, as they affect public morals, were denounced at today's session of the International Purity Conference. I mean, I guess they were right to be worried about the cigarette, but kind of got the reason wrong. Anyway, that wasn't the only threat to morality at the time. In the Princeton University student newspaper in 1925, the moral threat was cars. Here's from Princeton University's dean at the time. The general effect of the automobile was to make the present generation look lightly at the model code and to decrease the value of the home. And in the New York Daily News in 1929, we are back to losing our concentration, but now, thanks to radio. An adult who unthinkingly allows a radio to run incessantly as a background to every home activity is hindering the sensitive child, or even a normal one, in developing concentration, discrimination, and fineness of taste. And all this silly stuff aside, the 1920s saw the rise of the KKK and a xenophobia that led to the federal government severely limiting immigration. Prohibition meant you couldn't get a legal drink the entire decade and states were banning the teaching of evolution. So, you know, not the most fun time after all. But hey, at least they had flapper dresses. So if the 1920s was no golden age, then when can we turn to? Again, there is no simple answer here. So let's just say we rewind a few decades to before all this stuff that was making everyone nervous. Car, refrigerators, radio, whatever. Nothing was invading the home and whiskey was widely available. How about the late 1800s? America had just built the transcontinental railroad. The frontier was conquered. Industry was booming and America was great, except... There was this disease that everyone seemed to have, something truly frightening, and it was called neurasthenia. Chronic headaches could be neurasthenia. Insomnia, especially characterized by racing thoughts, that was considered neurasthenia. Chronic diarrhea and indigestion, that was also considered potential neurasthenia. This is David G. Oh, I'm sorry. You're not done? Impotence. People blame that on neurasthenia, as well as for women, amenorrhea and a certain sense of barrenness would be blamed on neurasthenia as well. People didn't use the term stress in the late 19th century. That's a 20th century term, but they use the term anxious and anxiety. And so when people would worry about problems they had no control over, that could be neurasthenia. Whew, that is a lot. Anyway, this is David Sh- Chronic back pain, uh, joint pain. That was also considered to be neurasthenia. So just about any part of life that was unpleasant, whether it be someone being plagued by morbid thoughts, an inability to control their thoughts, an inability to go to sleep, or an inability to control their body, like get simple erections. Those were all considered uh, symptoms of neurasthenia. This is David G. Schuster, author of a book called Neurasthenic Nation. The neurasthenia diagnosis basically went like this. At the turn of the century, people believed that nervous energy kept us physically and mentally vibrant. But as life became faster and 
and busier and noisier with the growth of cities and the expansion of the railroad, there was a pervasive fear that all of our newly busy lives were sapping our nervous energy. And when this happened, we got sick. We had neurasthenia, which is to say neurasthenia was a nostalgia narrative transformed into a disease. So I asked David, what was actually happening to people who were suffering from neurasthenia? Because, you know, if someone went to the doctor with chronic headaches and constipation, neurasthenia wasn't the problem. But, you know, something was happening to them. There was a real ailment, right? So ultimately, if someone is neurasthenic, it's not so much a condition in which they blame themselves for neurasthenia, so much as people see neurasthenia as a result of modern life. And so they can talk about it and say, I am neurasthenic, you're neurasthenic, but it, it, it absolves them of the personal guilt of doing things that would cause their health to go down. When I heard David say this, something clicked in my brain because I thought, Whoa, wait a second. I remember reading something exactly like this, but written in modern times. It was a 2016 cover story in New York Magazine, which said, put down your phone. That was what was on the cover. Its author was Andrew Sullivan, and he wrote this. If the internet killed you, I used to joke, then I would be the first to find out. Years later, the joke was running thin. In the last year of my blogging life, my health began to give out. Four bronchial infections in 12 months had become progressively harder to kick. My doctor, dispensing one more course of antibiotics, finally laid it on the line. Did you really survive HIV to die of the web? The story is really just Andrew recounting his internet-fueled personal breakdown. He was working constantly, his blog was an ever-hungrier beast that needed to be fed, and the nonstop chore destroyed his body and his personal relationships. But the parallels to neurasthenia are just fascinating. I mean, here you have a man clearly working too hard, whose health was suffering as a result, which is a real thing, but upon finally reaching a breaking point, he absolved himself of guilt by blaming the technology. And to get away from the technology, he went to a meditation retreat center, which is actually where a lot of the story takes place. He called it the ultimate detox. And that is just deeply ironic because, well, take a guess what the lasting legacy of neurasthenia actually is. Neurasthenia in the late 19th century happened at the exact same time you have the growth of professional medicine, you have the development of medical schools, and it's not simply professional physicians. The growth of the American pharmaceutical industry, the late 19th century and the early 20th century was the golden age of patent medicines. So you had a number of drug companies that would put powerful drugs into bottles. Cocaine and alcohol, for instance, would give you energy. <laughs> Opium and alcohol will deaden pain and help you sleep. You also had parts of the economy that glommed onto neurasthenia because they offered relief from modern life. You have the rise of the tourist industry in America. The idea being that you get out into the wild, you get out into the open air, and it restores the body's vitality. So here's what happened. In the late 1800s, tuberculosis was the most lethal disease in America, and for a while, people thought it was inherited, which made it feel kind of noble. As a result, a network of Western resorts popped up to pamper people as they died. But then we discovered that tuberculosis wasn't a noble inheritance. It was actually a bacteria that you can catch, which made the disease seem yucky and not worth pampering. So these resorts and the whole marketplace that had developed to serve tuberculosis patients switched their 
their marketing materials. They started catering to the overworked businessman and society woman who were suffering from neurasthenia. And that is where America's leisure economy comes from. And it's where Andrew Sullivan's meditation retreat came from. And it's where there is still a thriving marketplace today, which was captured nicely in this Good Morning America segment called How and Why You Should Go on a Digital Detox Vacation. Disconnection upon them, which is a little bit crazy, frankly, if you think about it. No cell service and no Wi-Fi is starting to mean no vacancy. With a 300-person waiting list, this converted fire tower in rural Oregon costs $200 a night, more than $400 a night on this island in the Caribbean, or $2,000 a night in Alaska to really, really shut it all out. So, okay, the late 1800s was no golden age. And now we must ask our question again. When did the people of this time think the golden age was? The answer, says David Schuster, was the time before the Civil War. They were looking squarely at the pre-Civil War America, a nation in which the majority of Americans were still working on the land, working in farms, living in rural communities. So that is where we go next, to a golden era before this great nation tore itself apart, where we find many people making a rather familiar complaint. The republic that the framers had created back uh, in the 1770s and 80s and 90s had decayed and that somehow we'd strayed away from the will of the founders and that we ought to get back to it. This is Harry Watson, a professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Even then, mere decades after the Constitution was signed, a large portion of America felt that we had already strayed from what our founding fathers intended. One of the people who said that we were declining most uh, loudly was President Andrew Jackson, and he wanted to get back to the good old days by increasing democratic opportunities for ordinary white men. And this is still a foundational argument today, right? I mean, yeah, there's the part about protecting ordinary white men, but I mean this more generally, too. You can find it in politics and religion and basically any system that tells a specific story of its founding. And the argument goes like this. One or multiple people created a system and they had a vision that was clear and pure. And now today we have strayed from it, except for, of course me, the person telling you this story, for I know exactly what the founders intended, and that makes my mission as equally clear and pure as theirs. And whenever I hear this kind of argument, I always wonder the same thing, which is, I mean, you know, sort of fanciful, but what would happen if we could bring like James Madison or Jesus or whoever back to life and say, do you approve of what this person here is saying? Because I'm guessing they would say, absolutely not. That person is not understanding what I meant. And then what would happen? Would our modern prophets and politicians say, oh, shut up, James Madison and Jesus. I know what you said better than you do. Well, Here's the thing. The pre-Civil War era is actually a very interesting test case for this weird thought experiment, because while people were laying claim at the time to what the founding fathers intended or did not intend. Some of the framers were still alive. James Madison, for example, who was virtually the, the author of the Constitution. He was in very old age, but there were plenty of people around who knew better, and a lot of them said so, but... What Jackson believed and what a lot of his followers believed was that ordinary people understood the common good a lot better than 
guys with white wigs, and so you just couldn't tell people that this was not something the framers had approved of. Wait a second. If, let me let me make sure that I understood that correctly. Mm-hmm. Are you saying that there people would people would say we have to get back to what the founding fathers intended? And yes. a founding father who was still alive was like, yep. actually, you are not properly representing what it was that I intended. And the people yeah. were like, doesn't matter. We're getting back to what we think you intended. Yes. There is a shocking amount of insight contained in this moment, you know? First of all, it shows how flexible the concept of truth is. There is what's true and what feels true, and people seem willing to embrace them equally. And also, this whole thing about the Founding Fathers just so perfectly illustrates our complicated relationship with our past. As individuals and as cultures, we put a lot of weight into our origins. We tell a story of where we came from as a means of explaining or validating where we want to go. But if our origin story is an inconvenient fit with our goals, we don't humble ourselves and adjust our goals or challenge our beliefs to fit this origin story that we hold in such high regard. No, we just change the origin story. We treat our origin less like a blueprint and more like the steering wheel of a car. It's like whoever gains control of it can dictate the direction we travel. So, okay, Let's recap. A large faction of people today romanticized the 1950s, and the people of the 1950s romanticized antebellum America, and antebellum America romanticized revolutionary America. And who now were the revolutionaries romanticizing? Well, uh, the British Empire sure wasn't going to get the nomination. Jefferson, at that time, before the revolution started, would talk about the ancient Saxon constitution of England as being far superior to anything that existed in his lifetime and bemoaning the fact that we couldn't seem to be able to get back there. Benjamin Franklin said similar things. Which means it is time to leave America, and with it, our modern era, as we continue our quest to pinpoint exactly when the good old days were. The suspense is high here, I know. Will we find a golden age inscribed on parchment somewhere, telling tales of abundant mead and meat pies and no anxiety or strife? When will the greatest moment in humanity be revealed to be? There is a lot more history to unwind, I promise you, coming up after the break. All right, we're back. In this episode, we are, of course, searching for exactly when the good old days were, starting with the nostalgia narrative that grips so much of America today, and then looking backwards and backwards for an era where everyone who was alive at the time said, yes, now is the best time, instead of being consumed by nostalgia for another time prior to their own. And just before the break, we learned that American revolutionaries looked to the Saxon Constitution of England as the good old days. So that means it's time to leave America and head over to Europe and see what those people thought about their own time. But before we do, I want to step back for a moment to look at the big picture. First, of course, I need to acknowledge this little experiment of mine is following only one culture's line of thinking. Different cultures have different stories. For example, if we rewound history but stayed on the American continent, we'd of course eventually reach a time before European settlers ever arrived when pre-contact native cultures were thriving. And did they carry nostalgia narratives? The answer is 
complicated. I asked this of Walter Fleming, a professor of Western and tribal history at Montana State University, and he says it's impossible to generalize because there were just so many different cultures at the time. But in general, no. Their cultural narratives were often rooted in a sense of destiny and sometimes in an inevitable cycle of growth and destruction. And so they thought about their place in time very differently than we do. Though after European settlers arrived and a growing America kept marginalizing and destroying these native cultures and the lands that they relied upon to survive, a new religious movement called the Ghost Dance grew in popularity in the late 1890s, and that very much was a nostalgia narrative. The, the movement had at its center a vision of an earth renewed. In other words, all is lost and it's time for the reset button. It is a nostalgia narrative born out of trauma. That audio, by the way, was of Lewis Warren, a professor of Western U.S. history at the University of California, Davis, that I found in a YouTube documentary. And this makes me think. The question of whether a culture has a nostalgia narrative may really be a question of whether that culture needs a nostalgia narrative. Stories can be a way to process trauma or to make sense of things that don't fit into our understanding of the world. And... Is that so bad? They offer an easy solution. They offer assurance that paradise is possible because it already happened in the past. And that doesn't sound so bad. That was Alan Levinovitz again, by the way. He is the associate professor of religion at James Madison University, who you heard at the beginning of the episode. And he's also studied how nostalgia impacts cultures. And so what is wrong with easy solutions? Well, they identify clear villains in the causing of suffering, and of course, demagogues who want to gain power quickly exploit those kinds of narratives instead of having to do the slow, hard labor of thinking about complicated situations and trying to address them using expertise and not making everyone happy and telling, you know, not telling people that you have a simple answer. It makes it easier to rise to power if you believe in that kind of narrative, even if it's an illusion. There is no shortage of historically bad actors to point to. Hitler, Pol Pot, they loved the good old days. But you don't have to go that extreme. Nostalgia narratives can also just lead us to counterproductive solutions. For example, Alan says, There's a concern about, say, you know, what, what may or may not be rising rates of autism or ADHD. And that's a legitimate concern. We need to know how to deal with that. Nostalgia says, well, let's look at the things that we have now that we didn't have back then. Fluoride, there's one, and it's modern sounding, and it's scary, and it's a chemical. And, and the nostalgia narrative tells us, well, let's, let's take that out. That must be the culprit. And of course, it's entirely possible that fluoride is the culprit for something. There's oodles of chemicals that have destroyed the world. We're destroying the environment with lots of modern things. But that nostalgia narrative predisposes us to judge modernity harshly when what we want to do is judge it objectively. And what is the result of that kind of thinking? Well, let's go small scale and big scale. Here is the smallest, stupidest scale I can think of. In the middle of the pandemic, I remember coming across a popular line of prepackaged salads that made a point of saying really big on the label that they were handmade. And I saw this and I thought, why would I want someone's hands all over my salad during a pandemic? In fact, why would I want someone's hands all over my salad before or after a pandemic either? What could possibly be better about a salad that someone has touched versus one that's made by a robot? Assuming robots make salads, I have no idea. And also, not to belabor the point, but did you hear about this? Two people in California are suing Maker's Mark. They claim the company is lying by saying its bourbon is handmade. They say the whiskey is made using automated processes with little to no human involvement. Maker's Mark, more like Faker's Mark. 
That was in 2015. And those two people sued for $5 million because they said they'd paid more for the whiskey because they believed it was actually made by hand, which, okay, is probably just one of a bazillion garbage lawsuits that take advantage of the legal system. But also, it is not unreasonable to think that someone would pay more for something because it is handmade. Because otherwise, why would Maker's Mark and that salad company be putting the word handmade on their labels in the first place. The market is speaking here. So again, it begs the question, why is the word handmade appealing? The answer, as I guess, is because it harkens back to a time before, because that's how they did it in the good old days. That's why it's nostalgia driving irrational decisions. By the way, that lawsuit was thrown out. And if you expand this outward far beyond what are perfectly fine but questionably marketed salads and whiskeys, you will find a distrust of modern solutions that are driving a very real marketplace for charlatans to sell people a bunch of uh, goop. And if you expand way, way, way outward to the big, big, big picture, what you find is this. So there's no need to look for novelty, innovation, surprises. Rather, it's something to be frowned upon. That is Johan Norberg, a Swedish author and historian of ideas whose latest book is called Open, the Story of Human Progress. And he's saying that if a culture believes all of its answers come from the past, then it no longer has an incentive to innovate. By way of extreme example, he points to ancient China from 1,000 years ago. It was a wildly innovative society, far out ahead of Europe on innovations in war, navigation, science, communication. But then, as its culture began to fracture in part because of outside aggressors, its response was to turn backwards. So they began to throw out novelty. They abandoned international trade and instead looked at the old books and purged them of all novelty, of all the ideas that came from other places, and suddenly became more of a Confucian orthodox state. And that led to 500 years of stagnation. And that brings us nicely back into our quest through history, the tracking back of the good old days from modern America to wherever it takes us. So when we last left off, the likes of Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin were longing for the days of the Anglo-Saxons, 700 years before their own time. Now, the Anglo-Saxons are what we call the Germanic tribes who lived on the island of Britain from roughly the years 500 to 1066. And was this a golden age as Thomas Jefferson imagined it to be? There is one word to answer this, and here is that one word. Vikings. So you're living in this world in which these brutal pagan invaders are constantly destroying your crops, killing your family wrecking the religious institutions that define your life. And so there is this strong nostalgia for an age before the Vikings came. That is Andrew Rabin, a professor of English at the University of Louisville, a medieval expert and a frequent guest on this show. And Andrew says that when the Anglo-Saxons did have a moment to themselves, you know, when they were not too busy getting slaughtered by Vikings, they often crafted a specific kind of poetry. One of the most popular surviving genres of Anglo-Saxon poetry is, a genre, is the genre of the elegy, the, the lament for the past. And it's a common feature in these poems to find a passage that we call the Ubisunt passage, the where are those who once were with us passage. In other words, it's kind of like make the 10th century great again poetry. And here's what it sounded like. You ready? Yeah, hit me. Where Where come maho? Where come mafungifa? 
where com simbla yesetu, where sindon celedremas, eala beort pumna, eala birnwicha, eala theodnis thrim. That is really the greatest party trick of all time. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a beautiful language. That's from a 10th century poem called The Wanderer. And here's what it says. Where has the horse gone? Where is the rider? Where is the giver of gold? Where are the seats of the feast? Where are the joys of the hall? Alas, for the bright cup. Alas, for the mailed warrior. Alas, for the splendor of the prince. Alas, for Instagram. And how it has made us so vain. Well, I made that last part up. By the way, the Vikings, this was their golden age. I emailed Benjamin Hudson, a professor of history and medieval studies at Penn State, to ask if the Vikings of the time also left writing expressing nostalgia for days of yore, and he said... Nope, they seem to be enjoying themselves pretty well. Though after the classical Viking Age had passed, there was a lot of nostalgia for it. Apparently, the Norwegian king Magnus III, or Magnus Barefoot, started putting together a Norse empire explicitly because he longed for the good old days of raping and pillaging. So... Where to next? The Anglo-Saxons were driven by nostalgia, but their nostalgia wasn't exactly rooted in a particular time. Alas for the bright cup, alas for the mailed warrior, that doesn't have a calendar date attached to it. And even if it did, most of the Anglo-Saxons' predecessors have been lost to time. We just don't know that much about them. So instead, let's take a little sidestep here. A few centuries after the Anglo-Saxons, you had the Renaissance in Europe. And you might imagine that the Renaissance was a golden age. All that art, all that literature, all that philosophy. Super good stuff, right? A total golden age. Except... The Renaissance is also the era of the plague, which hit not only in the mid-14th century, as most people know, but kept coming back every 20 years throughout the whole Renaissance era to about 1700. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so the Renaissance was just constant death. Pretty much constant death, Yeah for one reason or another, and gruesome war pretty much all the time. There might have been like a 10-minute period in which there was peace. <laughs> this is Sarah Ross, a history professor at Boston College. And perhaps in part because of these regularly scheduled plagues and wars and death, the people of the Renaissance were obsessed with the past. They were absolutely ancient worshippers, and the Golden Age was an idea in their mind. And this manifested in a super interesting way. So, okay, when Sarah says that they were ancient worshippers, she means that they were worshipping the classical Greek and Roman thinkers. And this obsession was so powerful that you could literally move up in social class just because you studied them. Supposing you're uh, a pharmacist, let's say. If you manage to get one way or another, by hook or by crook, some contact with classical antiquity in your education, and you're displaying in your shop some even translations of Cicero, you have a higher status person come into your, your establishment and they say, like, oh, wait, you're not just a, a grunt who works with their hands. You're kind of interesting. Let's have a conversation. And the next thing you know, you are going to classier parties and making classier friends and marrying up. Anything was possible when you worshipped the ancients. So here's where it gets really interesting. Because Renaissance writers were so obsessed with the ancients that they actually imagined communicating with them. It's a really strange sense of these people in the Renaissance talking to the past, having maybe heated conversations with the past. And sometimes 
These conversations went south. The Renaissance scholar Petrarch, for example, idolized the ancient Roman writer Cicero. So Petrarch went digging into monasteries to find Cicero's old manuscripts in search of more Cicero wisdom. What he found instead were a lot of Cicero's private letters, which revealed Cicero to be uh, kind of a political hack. And Petrarch did not take this discovery well. I mean, he literally writes letters to Cicero saying, you jackass, I paraphrase, (laughs) I idolized you. I thought you were the perfect philosopher and statesman. And now I discover that you're just a jerk like everyone else. This is but one example. The Renaissance is full of people writing letters to and arguing with dead scholars. And I really like this because weird as it is, it actually feels so healthy. Think back to what happened in colonial America, or even America today, where we either totally lionize someone for the past or we totally misrepresent them. Some people will call themselves an originalist while staking out their own personal claim over old wisdom. But Renaissance writers, they try to confront their heroes. They recognize that something isn't better just because it's from the past, and then they got upset about it. So anyway, all of that is to say, was the Renaissance the good old days? No. And when did those people think the good old days were? Well, ancient Rome for one. So off we go now to ask, did the ancient Romans think that they were living in a golden era? The Roman historian Tacitus can offer us an answer. He told the tale of the Roman Empire from its beginning to his time in about 100 BC, and he liked to drop big, hot takes. So he's constantly saying, you know, I'm sorry uh, for, you know, telling you about yet more murders that the autocratic emperors have committed against their own subjects and more rapes and more sexual perversion and more records of excessive dining, eating and, you know, sumptuary practices. That's Alex Dressler, an associate professor of classics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And he says Tacitus was not alone here. The Romans had a narrative about themselves, and it went like this. The more money and power we have, and the more technologies we create, like sewage systems, the more our nation becomes indulgent and lazy. And so the Romans like to look backwards to a time before all that. Here is Alex paraphrasing Tacitus. Historians of earlier times could talk about war and expansion and great speeches, but you have to write what you've got, and this is what I've got. It's an interesting echo of today, actually. We often talk now about how modern life makes us lazy, how Google makes us stupid and Facebook makes us lonely and all of that. Turns out it is an old complaint. So if the ancient Romans didn't think they were living in the good old days, when did they think the good old days were? Alex says the answer kind of folds in on itself because Romans were always just obsessed with earlier Romans. So the good old days were just more ancient Rome. So in that case, I am just going to throw a historical Hail Mary here. Let us go back literally as far as we can go back to the beginning of writing to the earliest possible records we can find of humans consciously recording themselves and therefore the first chance that humans had to record for all of history, the ups and downs of their world. Let us go back to Mesopotamia, to the culture that literally invented writing in about 3,500 BCE, because if these people thought the good old days came before them, then I guess that's the ballgame. So I called up Eckhart Fromm, a professor of Assyriology at Yale University, and he says that at the beginning of humanity's written record, there is really no talk of the past at all. But 
as they move forward in time, the sentiment that you're interested in, namely that there might have been times much better than the times people were living in, that sentiment seems to have become much stronger. And there it is. As soon as we started telling our own story, we started looking backwards at it with longing. We have quite a few texts that make that quite explicit, where uh, we find this idea of a golden age expressed in very clear terms. For example, in the late 3rd century BCE, a Babylonian priest named Berasus wrote a story about the beginning of time when a monster with the body of a fish and a human head and feet popped out of the water and started talking. Here, Eckhart reads a bit from the story. This monster spent its days with man, never eating anything, but teaching man the skills necessary for writing and for doing mathematics and for all sorts of knowledge, how to build cities, found temples, and make laws. It taught man how to determine borders and divide land, also how to plant seeds and then to harvest their fruits and vegetables. In short, it taught man all those things conducive to a settled and civilized life. Since that time, nothing further has been discovered. Nothing further has been discovered? Of course, that is not true. These people developed new types of agriculture and plows. They made huge leaps in science. They devised a numerical system based around the number 60, which is the reason that we today have 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour. They had technology, and that technology made their lives better. But still, the Assyrians of thousands of years ago yearned for the knowledge that came before them. We have surviving clay tablets from this era in which people wrote to Assyrian kings requesting that they dig out old magical recipes from ancient libraries to make medicines and cure all sorts of ills. And just like today, this blind belief in the wisdom of our forefathers led to immediate abuse. Some priests actually used this nostalgia uh, of their kings, this yearning for knowledge about earlier times. They used it in order to advance their own interests of, for example, getting more donations to their temples by forging inscriptions of earlier uh, times. This, the past, is our everlasting weakness. So... Let's recap. Many Americans today think that the good old days was the 1950s. The 1950s romanticized the 1920s, who romanticized before the Civil War, who romanticized the Revolution, who romanticized the Anglo-Saxons, who romanticized some abstract time earlier. And a while after that, the Renaissance romanticized the Romans, who romanticized previous Romans, who romanticized previous Romans, who, anyway, it goes on like that for a while. And eventually we're in Mesopotamia, where people are using cuneiform to write golden age narratives on clay tablets, and priests are forging old documents for profit. Except for the Vikings who were having a rampaging good time, and the Native Americans who saw the world as driven by destiny, the pattern here is clear. No matter the time period, no matter the level of suffering or accomplishment, we kept saying that something before us was better than we are, as if we gave up on our ability to build a better tomorrow. We are so hard on ourselves. Why? The people I spoke to for this episode had a lot of theories about why, and so here are three of them. Number one, we use the past as evidence that we can achieve a better future. Even if we're talking about a golden age that never existed, that fiction is useful because it says that we were great once and we can do it again. 
Number two, the past represents our birthright. If we say that our forefathers had something and it was lost, then it means it is ours to regain. It means that we are owed this. And that is a powerful feeling, especially if you come from a culture that was once dominant, but no longer is. And number three, the idea that things were better before is at the very core of our foundational texts. Adam and Eve is a golden age story. And long before that, the Mesopotamians had their wisdom spouting fish man. So what can all of this teach us about today? Today, a time dominated by its own nostalgia narratives, where a golden age was so powerful that it may shape American politics for generations. What do we do with that? Well, I turn now back to Alan Levinovitz. He's the guy you heard a few times from in this episode, talking about the nefariousness of nostalgia narratives. And truth be told, I first connected with him because he was so good at demonizing the nostalgia narrative. He'd written a piece for Eon about how terrible these things could be. But after we talked for a while about the dangers of nostalgia, he admitted something to me. Something changed in him recently. I used to think that the way to undermine narratives that distort is to just rub people's faces in it, just show them, force them to confront their own irrationality. And I'm no longer convinced that's a good way to go about it because these narratives, especially the nostalgia narrative, they're often born of great pain. And when you walk up to someone who is in great pain and you rip away from them the key story that is keeping them you know, from just like dissolving into a puddle of suffering. That's just that you're messing with people. Yeah, fine. It can feel satisfying for a moment. You come in with your logic and slam it against someone else's narrative and you can walk away feeling intellectually superior. But Alan makes a good point. Is that constructive? Does that do the job? It's like when Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins or, you know, Christopher Hitchens tears into the irrationality of religion or Freud or Hume or whoever, because people have been doing this for centuries. I I think it's very important when you do that to be cognizant of the fact that you are walking into someone's home and like ripping up their most sacred book. And I don't know that I want to be that person anymore. And I was for a long time. So then how do you replace someone's narrative without taking a narrative away? You gently and tactfully allow them to take away their own narrative at a pace that won't cause pain. I mean, the idea, you know, I think, you know, all revolutionaries are eager, right? I was eager in that Eon piece, right? I'm sort of fantasizing, well, if I just write like, uh, like an incontrovertibly good essay, I'll just like rip nostalgia instantly away from everyone. But of course that doesn't happen. Revolutions are violent and bloody and often when they are over, the revolutionaries have nothing to fill the vacuum that they've created. And so we either have to be patient and work slowly at the parts of the narratives that are most pernicious and work gently and tactfully and lovingly with the people who believe them, or we have to be damn sure that when we rip that narrative away, we have something awesome to fill its place Like I mentioned at the beginning, I originally made this episode in 2016, just as the phrase Make America Great Again won an election. Four years later, its legacy is obviously a lot more complicated than a simple issue of nostalgia and a romanticizing of the past, and it is hard to meet some of the worst tendencies of that movement with Alan's tenderness and understanding. But I think his point should still be taken to heart. And, well, To explain why, here is one more moment from history. 
The word nostalgia was coined by a Swiss physician named Johannes Hofer in 1688. He combined the Greek nostros, or homecoming, with algos, or pain, to get nostalgia, and he classified it as a disease. The 17th century medical explanation for nostalgia went like this. There are vital spirits in the brain, and when someone is always longing for their past, then the vital spirits are surging in the part of the brain where those images from the past are located. And because of that, the vital spirits can't make it to the other parts of the brain, the parts that are required to do tasks today. And this was concerning for soldiers out at war. That is where most of the early medical interest was focused. And because the concept had come out of Switzerland, many people started to associate nostalgia with the Swiss, which made everyone fear that Swiss soldiers would now be perceived as weak. So in 1705, another Swiss doctor tried to explain all this away. He said that when Swiss soldiers descended from the mountains, the increase in atmospheric pressure impacted their brains in such a way that it created the nostalgia. So nostalgia wasn't just a disease of the brain. It was a condition inflicted by outside forces. And why do I tell you this now? Well, because consider what those old doctors got right and what they got wrong. Nostalgia is a disease. That is obviously not correct. But nostalgia inhibiting growth and progress? That actually was right. Something to be ashamed of? No, it's actually quite understandable. But something that is caused in part by outside forces? Yes, though, you know, not an increase in atmospheric pressure by descending the Swiss Alps, but it is often caused by shifts in the things we can't control. This is what Alan was saying, that a nostalgia narrative is the story that people tell when they are in pain, and there is no easy cure for that. Certainly, the cure isn't to just rip the story away. Alan used the word revolution, and there has been a kind of real revolution after all. It was a massive shift in industry and technology and jobs, and it did and continues to make very many people feel left behind. And so, just like the many cultures and people we explored in this episode, plenty of people today are thinking to themselves, you know, today doesn't have a lot to offer me. And you cannot convince them otherwise with logic and argument. You convince them otherwise with opportunity replacing an old narrative with a compelling and exciting new one that is complete with experiences and a chance to grow. Which means that we have our work cut out for us to build those great things and those equitable things and to also build on-ramps to those things so that people can see gain where they once saw loss. I suppose the idea is this. There was no golden age, but who cares? What we have, all anybody has ever had, is now. We are alive now. We can create things now. And will our work culminate in an actual golden age? forever looked back upon by future generations who wish for what we were able to create? Who knows? Maybe not. And yet, what else can we do but try? And that's our episode. But hey, you might be wondering to yourself, is there a nostalgia narrative developing in me? I have an interesting way to think about that. But first, if you like this show, formerly called Pessimist Archive and now called Build for Tomorrow, then please join me in spreading optimism. Subscribe and tell a friend about the show and sign up for my newsletter, which is all about how to find opportunity and change. You can get it by going to jasonpfeiffer.com. That is Jason, J-A-S-O-N, Pfeiffer, F as in Frank, E-I, F as in Frank, E-R.com. And hey, follow me on social media on 
Twitter or Instagram. I am at Hey Pfeiffer. If you DM me, I promise to reply. Links to all of this stuff are in the show notes. This episode was reported and written by me, Jason Pfeiffer. Sound editing by Alec Bayless. Our theme music is by Casper Babypants. Learn more at babypantsmusic.com. The voice actors you heard in this episode were Gia Mora. You can find her at giamora.com. And Brent Rose. You can find him at brentrose.com. This show is supported in part by the Charles Koch Institute. The Charles Koch Institute believes that advances in technology have transformed society for the better and is looking to support scholars, policy experts, and other projects and creators who focus on embracing innovation, creating a society that fosters innovation, and encouraging people to engineer the next great idea. If that is you, then get in touch with them. Proposals for projects in law, economics, history, political science, and philosophy are encouraged. To learn more about their partnership criteria, visit cki.org. Again, that is cki.org. All right. Now, a final word to bring the past and the present together. As I said many times, this episode was originally created in 2016, and in late 2020, a book came out called Open, The Story of Human Progress, and it included a very nice reference to the original version of this episode. Then, an excerpt from that book with the very nice reference ran in the Wall Street Journal. And so when I decided to remake this episode, I thought, well... I got to include the author of that book, and that, of course, was Johann Norberg, who you heard from a little bit earlier. During our conversation, Johann made this really interesting point about how we each personally can develop a nostalgia narrative about our own lives. He says that there's an easy way to see it, and it's in kids. Kids coming back from summer holiday, and they're being asked, so give me a list of what was good and what was bad. And they're comparably almost similarly long lists and you ask them again six months later and then suddenly the good things that they remember from their summer holidays much longer and when you ask them again at 12 months later it's basically only good stuff that they remember so they don't remember their summer holiday they remember their idealized version of a summer holiday. And that's the same thing with us as individuals as well. Even if you went through war, even if you were to prison, people tend to polish their past and remember the, if not the good things, at least the important things. And people tell you, I wouldn't have wanted to be without this episode in my life, because that's part of what made them into what they are. You know what's so fascinating about what you just said there, which I hadn't thought about in quite this way, is I often think of nostalgia narratives as a pessimistic thing, which is to say that we are discounting whatever good comes today in favor of yesterday. But the way that you just framed it with the summer camp thing makes me think that what we are actually doing is we're filtering for good. There's a kind of optimism to it. We're always filtering for what the good experience was, and we always want the good experience. And then the challenge, of course, is that we know the good experience from the past, and we don't know if there are good experiences going forward. And so we kind of become stuck and drift towards what we knew instead of what we can know. But all the same, I feel like what you're describing is a tilt towards optimism, misguided as it may be. Yes, in a way, that's a hopeful conclusion. Because we're all constantly building our personal narratives and trying to explain who we are, how we became, what we are, and what to do next. And then it's kind of hopeful that we're trying to see what happened in our past that was important 
and turned us into what we hopefully think are fairly decent uh, human beings. So it's not entirely a pessimistic thing. It's more like a way of creating a decent personal narrative and an identity of, of for ourselves. But but that's what it is. It's a personal narrative. It's a fairly decent feeling. It can't be a governing philosophy. So now off you go. Every day growing more nostalgic for the time you heard this episode. Thanks for listening. I am Jason Pfeiffer, and let's keep building for tomorrow. <laughs>